The scripture reading this morning is Psalm 23, verses 1 through 4b, and Isaiah chapter 43, the verses 1 and 2. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Isaiah. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. The word of the Lord. You might remember a movie that was based on uh, a novel, 1996, the movie that came out. It was called uh, The English Patient. It's kind of a slow, tragic romance um, movie, but it's, it's an interesting film. Um, it takes place in Egypt uh, during the Second World War. There's a married woman by the name of Catherine. And uh, as the story sort of flashes back uh, through a series of scenes, she finds herself um, often alone because her husband is pursuing an expedition in cartography. And so she's often alone. And during this time, she falls in love with um, an impossibly exotic Hungarian nobleman by the name of Count Laszlo, like you do, right? And so Count Laszlo, who's another cartographer, he discovers an ancient like prehistoric cave, an amazing cave deep into the Sahara Desert that has prehistoric paintings in it and this and that. And Laszlo and Catherine fall into a passionate love affair. Uh, Catherine's husband senses that this is going on and he plans revenge. A murderous revenge. He gets uh, Catherine, puts her in the back of his biplane, and he flies over to Laszlo's excavation camp near the ancient cave, and he tries to land the plane literally on Laszlo himself to kill him. Um, But the plan backfires, and he crashes and dies, and Laszlo walks away with only minor injuries, but Catherine is badly hurt life-threatening injuries. And so we witness, uh, we witness Laszlo carrying Catherine slowly and lovingly toward this prehistoric cave. Now, Laszlo and Catherine face the predicament of a lifetime. Catherine's injuries are life-threatening. 
She, if she is going to live, Laszlo is going to need to take a three-day journey to Cairo to find medical help. But that, that uh, runs a whole lot of risks. It's a dangerous journey. Even if Laszlo gets there unscathed, there may be no one there who would be willing to go and help Catherine. And even if all of these ifs come true, there has to only be a small chance that Catherine would even survive or live um, by the time he gets back. What are they to do? What does Laszlo do? I want us to think about this as uh, this predicament as essentially the defining question of our lives. Here's my hypothesis. Most educated people in the West, in our culture, assume that the fundamental human problem, the problem that we're all trying to overcome or solve through religion and medicine and everything else, the fundamental human problem most people in the West think is mortality specifically and human limitation more generally. But what if it turned out that the fundamental human problem is not mortality, as in we're going to die, but isolation? Our biggest problem is not that we would die, but that we would find ourselves utterly alone. What do I mean by this? Well, if the fundamental human problem is isolation, then the solutions that we're looking for in the world do not lie in the laboratory or in the hospital or in the frontiers of human knowledge or technology. No, it, it, instead the solution lies in what we already have, namely one another. What if the answer for Laszlo isn't going to Cairo? Let me explain this a little bit more by asking a basic theological question. Why do Christians, to use conventional familiar language, want people to be saved? Well, the answer might be um, because those people are going to die and when they die, they might go to hell or oblivion or nothingness or whatever the term is for downstairs. But if you ask, well, then what's so great about going to heaven? What kind of an answer do you get? Well, Heaven is, I would suggest, a state of being with God and being with people and being with the renewed creation. Uh, in other words, a heaven that is simply only about overcoming mortality and living forever is an eternal life that's not worth having. It's not worth having because it leaves one alone forever. And being alone forever is not a description of heaven. That's a description of hell. So, heaven then, that is worth aspiring to, is actually a rejoining of relationship, right? This, we know this, with God, with ourself, with one another, with the renewed creation, and the fancy word for that is communion, the reconciliation of all things. So, let me explore this even more by describing three scenes that I think will be familiar to all of us, and then try to understand what these three things have, these three scenes have in common. So here's the first scene. The first scene is between Jack and the most difficult relationship in his family, his brother George. George's birthday is coming up and Jack is troubled with what 
to buy George for his birthday. And somehow the troubling um, is sort of symbolic of Jack's inability to know what will please his brother. Um, and, and this is actually symbolic of a lifelong confusion about what might truly make his brother happy. And so in the end, Jack spends way more money than he meant to on something he didn't really believe George wanted, pathetically throwing money at the problem, but inwardly cursing himself because he knew that what he was buying wasn't the answer to the problem. When the birthday comes and George opens the present, Jack sees in his forced smile and his half-hearted hug of thanks that Jack has failed yet again to do something for George that might overcome the chasm between them. Scene two, you have family or friends coming into town for, for Easter, for the holidays. You want everything to be perfect for them and you exchange a flurry of emails about who's gonna bring what, who's gonna sleep where and whether it's okay to bring the dog. You get into a frenzy of shopping and baking. You're actually a little anxious that you're gonna forget something. So even during the Easter dinner, uh, the kitchen is your domain and you spend most of your time um, reheating the potatoes and checking the glaze. At the end of the night, you say goodbye to your guests and you hug them and you say it's such a shame that we never really actually got to talk while you were here and then after they finally leave, you collapse into a heap of exhaustion. Here's the third scene. Susie gets a large bonus uh, out of nowhere and her heart is breaking for people who are on the streets and in, uh, in the cold and poverty and grief. And so she goes to the grocery store and she buys a bag of uh, canned goods, fills up a bag of canned goods. She stops by the Utah Food Bank, drops them off, and then she goes over to the Fuller Center housing and uh, writes a little check. And then she goes home. What do these three scenes have in common? I suggest that they're based on one tiny little word, a three little word, and that word is for, F-O-R. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Something does go wrong. When we care, when we care about those uh, folks who are on the streets having a tough time, we want to do something for them. When we want our house guests to enjoy their visit, we, our impulse is to spend our time, our whole time doing things for them, cooking for them, clearing th the house and arranging activities to keep them busy. When we feel our relationship with our brother is faltering, our instinct is to do something for him that will somehow make everything all right. But as Siri reminded us, there is something wrong here. <laughs> And our world operates like this. We try to make relationships better. We try to make the world better. We try to be better people ourselves by doing things for people. We even praise the selflessness of people who spend their lives doing things for people. But these ge gestures, as kind, needed, helpful as they are, they don't get to the bottom of the problem. Uh, 
you give something uh, to your brother as a gift, and the chasm still lies between you. You wear yourself out showing hospitality, but you never had the conversation with your loved ones. You make fine gestures of charity, but the poor are still strangers to you. Most of all, four is not the way that God relates to us. God doesn't simply set the world straight for us. He doesn't simply shower us with blessings and then get all kind of mopey when we, he, when we don't seem to be excited enough for him. Four is not the heart of God. In some ways, we wish it was. We wish God would just make everything easy and happy and surround us with perfect things. Now we're ready for the text. We come to this line in Psalm 23 when David acknowledges that God does not relate to us primarily in this way. It doesn't say, even though I approached the valley of the shadow of death, you provided an easy way around for me. It doesn't say that. No, even though I walk through the darkest valley, you are with me. You are with me. David knew that at the heart of God, was his commitment to being with him. And if God is committed to being with us, then the reality of death can even be accepted. Why? Because the fundamental human problem isn't mortality, it's isolation. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, you're with me. Even in the face of death, you're with me. And I need you with me more than I need life itself. At this point in the psalm, the pronoun for God shifts from the third person to the second person, from he leads me in right paths for his name's sake to even as I walk through the darkest valley, now it is you are with me. It's almost as though the deeper David goes into the darkness, the more intimate his relationship with God gets. The closer God gets, the deeper we go into the valley. I love this passage that um, Anaheri read so well from Isaiah 43. It says something very similar. Isaiah says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. This con idea that God is walking as we pass through the dark valleys of our lives. Sometimes God calms the frightening storm. Sometimes God lets the storm rage on, and he calms the frightened child. So even before the time of Jesus... God's people always found uh, great comfort and great strength in knowing that God is a God of with. God is the God who wanted to be with his people, and they needed to know that God was with them. This goes all the way back to the book of Genesis when we see God with Adam and Eve walking with them in the cool of the evening in the garden. And then when Moses is called to go in and liberate the Hebrews, he's scared to death of Pharaoh, and God's affirmation is 
I'll be with you. And then the Hebrews go through, we talked about their roundabout route that was the right path for them at the right time last week. Uh, it was through a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud that God's presence was with them, assuring them that he's leading them. Then they build this tabernacle which housed the presence of God and they carried it with them, the mobile presence of God. It, and so um, at the heart of Old Testament faith even is this sense that God is with his people. God is with them. And then, of course, we get to the climax of the entire biblical story, which is about a God who wanted to be with his people so much so that he realized the only way to truly be with them is to become one of them. And so he sends his son to be the fullest expression of his desire to be with us. And so Matthew says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Even Psalm 23 points to Jesus. And then in John's gospel, we get the summary statement of the Christian faith. The word became flesh and lived with us. It seems like a really insignificant little word, but this little word is at the heart of the biblical faith. It might be the most important word in the Bible, and that's the word with. W-I-T-H, this little word. Think back to the very beginning of all things. John's gospel says the word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. Without him, nothing came into being. That means that before anything existed, before there was anything, there was a with. God was with. Um, and so with is at the heart of God. Uh, the with between God and the word or father and the son. With is the most fundamental thing about God. God doesn't exist apart from with. In fact, God as Trinity is, uh, reminds us of that as well. His very last words in Matthew's gospel, then Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always. In other words, there will never be a time where I am not with. And then at the very end of the entire Bible, uh, we hear this voice from heaven that says, Behold, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God, they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. We've stumbled upon the most important word, the word that describes the heart of God and the nature of God's purpose and destiny for us, and that's the word with. That's what God was in the very beginning and it's what God sought to instill all the way through in the covenants that he made in Jesus in the sending of the Holy Spirit and that's what our destiny will be in the company of God, all in this little word, with. In a lot of ways, with is, is harder than for. Um, you can do for without a conversation, without a real relationship, without a genuine um, caring about another person that incorporates them into your life. The reason the birthday present for George failed is because there's not because there's anything bad with generosity or bad with the gift it's because the only solution for Jack and George is to be with each other long enough to share their stories tease out the countless misunderstandings over over the years um, that uh, that have led to their relationship being hurt beyond being rescued by a nice present 
What makes attempts at charity sometimes feel a little hollow is not that they're not genuine and helpful and kind, um, but that what isolated and grieving and hurting people need um, more than a gift is the presence of someone who cares about them. It's the with that we need. And the for on its own, whether it's food, presence, whatever, will help but it will never make up for a lack of with. The good news is that God didn't settle for four. God said unambiguously, I am with. Even in the darkest of valleys, I am with you. There was definitely an element of four in Jesus' life. Jesus was for us when he healed, um, when he taught. He was for us when he died on the cross. And of course, Paul even says, because he is for us, who can be against us? So it's not that God is not about for. Um, God didn't abolish for. But in becoming flesh in Jesus, God said that there will never again be a for that is not based on an unalterable fundamental with. Everything God does for us is for the purpose of being with us. That's the good news of the gospel. So how do we celebrate this good news? Well, by being with people in their dark valleys, in poverty and distress, even when there's nothing we can do for them. By being with people in grief when there's nothing we can say. By being with and listening to and walking with those we find difficult and we'd rather just give them a gift and fob them off. Or being silent with God in prayer rather than rushing in our anxiety to do more things for God. God wants us to be with him. By taking an appraisal of our relationships and then asking ourselves, is my doing for coming out of a fundamental commitment of being with or is my doing for actually a way of avoiding the discomfort of being with? No one could be more tempted to avoid being with us than God. God knows how difficult company we can be sometimes. Most of the time, we would rather God just fix the problem and spare us the difficult relationship. But that isn't God's way. God could have done it all alone, but he chose not to. He chose to do it with us, even though it meant the cross. So as I wrap up, let me just um, come back to the English patient briefly. Think again about Laszlo's choice of whether to stay beside Catherine or walk to Cairo to get assistance. In the movie, he hardly thinks twice before he sets off on his three-day journey. And he has all sorts of adventures before he finally makes it back to the encampment and the ancient cave. And when he does, Uh, Catherine is very, 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 very dead. Laszlo is so committed to believing that there's a solution to her problem, her agonizing plight, and that he had the solution, that he overlooks the thing that she needed, which was to not be alone at the moment of her death. And that is being with Catherine. He's so concerned to solve the problem that he leaves her alone. And I wonder whether the real reason Laszlo went to Cairo is because he couldn't face the reality of her, of her death. He couldn't face having to deal with that. 
I wonder if sometimes we fill our lives with activity and productivity and creativity and busyness because we, we're afraid to sit still. Because then, as I guess it was Blaise Pascal said, the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he is unable to sit quietly in his own room. Um, then we have to deal with ourselves. I wonder how much of this is kind of like our lives is kind of like Laszlo going to Cairo. What Catherine needed was a man she loved to be with her as she faced the near certainty of her own death. But Laszlo didn't, maybe couldn't give her what she needed. And I wonder if we're turning our world into a Laszlo society with all kinds of products and solutions and gadgets and technologies full of devices and techniques, all of which make the world go around very effectively and function perfectly well without love. What is it that the world needs? Well, if the fundamental human problem is isolation, what the world it needs is love. Um, I know that's a song I might have just... <laughs> ruined the end of the sermon with that. Um, but herein lies the central choice of our lives. Are we going to give in to society's pressure to be fixers, or are we going to imitate the God who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death, the Christ of manger and crucifixion, the God who's with us always to the end of time? Are we going to love or search for solutions? That's the question, I think, that lies at the heart of what it means to be a Christian in today's world. God, we thank you for always being with us. There's nothing we need more than that. Help us to always be aware of this need of ours, this need that is found in Jesus Christ. Even as we move forward into our lives and we think about others, help us to be with them. Help us not to try to fix things that we can't fix, but let us uh, show up with the loving presence of Jesus Christ, being reminded that in our dark valleys, you are with us too. In Jesus' name, amen.